Greetings to all of you that are listening to this message. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just briefly want to mention to you how I am about to share this message. I am seeking to speak what God would be saying to the body of Christ at this particular hour and time. Out of the Spirit of God, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We are to seek to allow the Spirit of God to speak out of this. Not just give some prepared message that we've put into our memory, but to allow the Spirit of God to rise up through us and to speak beyond ourselves what we in our own natural selves would speak. Part of facilitating that involves with myself the casting of lots upon a particular chapter of the Word of God each day of the week. Usually I don't do it on Sunday. Where there's an equal chance for any particular scripture to come forth. And then I meditate on that passage of scripture for a half an hour. And then in that half hour also make some brief notes and usually, or at least often, speak immediately after doing that. This week I received the theme chapter I believe that I should speak on, which is Luke chapter 12. I don't know what I'm going to be sharing. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to speak through me. So we will begin by reading Luke chapter 12. In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trolled one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. And that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. And when they bring you into the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say 
And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak ye to my brother, that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do, I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you with taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they toil not, they spin not. Yet I stand you that Solomon all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothe the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom." Sell that ye have, and give alms, provide yourselves bags which wax not old. A treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approaches, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let your lions be girded about, and your lights burning, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord, when he will return from the wedding. That when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I send you, that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch, and find them so, blessed are those servants. And this know, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched, and not have suffered his house to be broken through. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in 
due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. And if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and the maidens, and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sonder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall much be required, and to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more. I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am straitened till it be accomplished. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on the earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. From henceforth there shall be five and one house divided, three against two and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And he said also to the people, When ye see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway ye say, There cometh a shower, and so it is. And when ye see the south wind blow, ye say, There will be heat, and it cometh to pass. Ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that ye do not discern this time? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? When thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. I tell thee, thou shalt not depart hence, or thence, till thou hast paid the very last might. And my mouth is dry after reading a very long chapter of 59 verses, so excuse me. Heavenly Father, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, that your word would prevail through me to touch the lives of those who in your foreknowledge have come to listen to this message, to speak to the body of Christ, that this would be a time when your word would have utterance and free course to bring forth your purpose and your glory in all the earth, preparing your corporate bride for your coming. First, what I will do is just briefly read the notes I made on Luke chapter 12 within that half hour. And in this case, I did use kind of an outline of four paragraphs for four sections of Luke. And the most part I meditated on was from verses 1 to 12. 
And in this first point, I said this hypocrisy has a very leavening influence and is because of not being honest and transparent before God. It finds its root in self-grasping fear due to the failure to fear God. When we genuinely fear God, we become totally honest and transparent before God, which brings us to the place of true humility and honesty in the recognition of our helplessness and guilt apart from the mercy of God. Thus, we reciprocate out of the reception of the mercy of God, the love of God, and grow in strong identity with God that is dead to identity with this world in relation to self. This makes one fearless to boldly confess Jesus Christ before the world in the face of persecution and death itself. And so I saw in these first 12 verses that they all, what Christ was saying, were not disjointed thoughts. They're all correlated. And I brought that out in what I just stated here. The second section, I said this. If we seek to feed our own securities and comforts of self with our labor and time, instead of seeking the kingdom of God first above these things, we will be judged by God with the hypocrites and the unbelievers. That's verse 13 to 21. And in the third section, verses 22 to 53, we are to be living our life as if the Lord will return at any moment because the Lord will return when we do not expect him to return if we are living otherwise. In the last section, verses 54 to 59, if we are watching and ready for the Lord's return, we will discern the time that we are living in so that we are about those things for the kingdom of God and will judge and discern those things that are right before God so that there is no grounds and judgment for judgment in us to cast us into captivity away from the presence of God. My, oh my. So in verses 1 to 12, the first thing that Christ emphasizes in the last part of verse 1 is to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is being one thing on the outside that contradicts what you are on the inside. It is being a confessor on the outside that is not a possessor because the inside is possessed of the opposite. And it has a leavening influence through the teaching that is used to rationalize one's justification before God, to sear the conscience and ignore the true condition of one's heart before God. And so it is that there is those teachings today and always has been that are birthed out of a hypocritical state of one's heart before God. 
These are teachings that take people away from the genuine fear of God and distort their monotheistic perception of God so that it is idolatrous. We saw this from the very beginning with Cain. And it is traced from Cain throughout history to this very hour. In Cain, we see someone that took offense at who God was in his holiness. And so before I go on to describe Cain's condition and how that leaven that began there in Cain in his heart has spread throughout history. I want to give an understanding and a right perception of God, an understanding of the fear of God, which is a choice from the heart that chooses to recognize God for who he truly is in relation to all things and especially in relation to one's self. I feel it's very important in this hour that this is taught. In fact, God has raised me up to teach on this, to raise a standard against these leavening teachings that are in so many places, not only to hinder the growth of believers and to bring a state that is far away from God and the church but in so many deceptive religious belief systems that have initially come out of the deceptions of one's heart that is allowed place for the devil to deceive with false teachings of demons. In describing God, I want to say it this way. I'm going to, I'm going to describe, first of all, what truth is. Truth is described in various dictionaries as basically this, that which is real. So you look up what the word real and reality is in various dictionaries, and basically it can be defined as this, that which is unchangeable, which is immovable, which is indestructible, and which is everlasting. One of the names for God is basically summed up with the word reality. Yahweh, also known as Jehovah, depending on whether you use the vowels later on that were used in the Hebrew or not. This basically means the self-existent one. It was expressed this way in both the Old Testament, and the Second Testament after Christ. Christ said, I am that I am. Yahweh said, I am that I am. In Hebrew it is, Ahiyah Asher Ahiyah. It's a very clear definition that God is the ultimate source of reality. And so what is Reality. Reality is a quality that has life 
without corruption. If there was death in reality, it would not be an everlasting reality and therefore would not be the source of reality. God has that constitution of being that contains unlimited power and unlimited life in a quality that can contain it without being corrupted by it or allowing unlimited power and life to be corrupted and is thus indicative of God being the very source of unlimited life and power that is channeled in a direction without corruption and therefore in a direction that is fully creative and ultimately good. Goodness is basically that which is totally fulfilling and filled with life and no corruption and ever enlarging in fulfillment. So what is this reality? Word of God says that God is love. In the Greek, it's the Greek word agape, the highest form of love, more than a mere feeling. It's not the Greek word philio, which is an emotional love, or the Greek word eros, which is a sexual love. It is the highest form of love. And this love can be basically defined this way. It is totally self-originating and free in its choice and always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate temporal self-gratification. Because it is this way, it is a love that is innate with an integrity that is, as it were, like a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be anything less than choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of self-gratification or fulfillment. It is more than just the feeling of filial love. It transcends filial love with a choice. This is the holiness of God. The integrity of God's love is the holiness of God. This quality that devours all corruption of those choices from free will being or whatever other source that would be contrary to this love. And this is the defensive aspect of the love of God. And it is most well illustrated in nature, which is filled with negatives and positives. Mathematics has the negative and the positive. Electricity has the negative and positive. All the cells and everything is held together by negatives and positives. And love has these two aspects. The first is the negative symbol, which represents the integrity of God's love that cuts off all that is contrary to the integrity of his love or of his holiness. It is the foundation from which creativity can spring forth with unlimited power and life that can be held without corruption and can ever express itself in greater and greater realms of enlargement and fulfillment. And it was ultimately expressed 
in time and space, in this world, in God seeking his ultimate purpose for creating this world and for creating all things, which is that he would have a corporate bride come forth out of those that he has created, especially those that are mostly cre most closely created in his image, which is the human race here on earth. And so God's love requires judgment. But this negative symbol also represents foundation, not only the cutting off of all those things that are corruption, but foundation from which springs this creativity that was ultimately expressed in the fact that God's love was so ultimate in its perfection of integrity that he could actually take judgment upon himself for creation, for his creation, for you and me, who through the indirect temptation of the physical realm have sinned against God and therefore are under the judgment of God's holiness. That God could love you so much that he came into the center of history in Jesus Christ and suffered more than you, the mere creature, and humbled himself more than you, the mere creature, so that you could repent because his love was outpoured in his blood for you on the cross so that you could be cleansed and made white as snow. And he suffered more than you, the mere creature. This is hard to grasp. I love that great. That he would absorb the judgment of God upon himself and actually be able to rise from the dead because he did not brink break his union with who he is, God. Now, some of you might be filled with questions when I'm talking about this. So I want to explain to those that are not from maybe the same background that I'm talking not about three gods. I'm talking about the one true God. For God to be truly almighty he must be able to be in personage and conscious intelligence beyond time and space to rule in that realm that sees the end from the beginning. In time and space, which is the creation realm, he must also be in personage to rule there. If he wasn't in conscious intelligence and in personage in that realm, then he would not be God or able to rule over the creation realm. And he also filling all space. So we have beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. The three ultimate aspects of existence which are also are in many different dimensions as it's been found from particle physics. And God is the Almighty's one. He's not three gods. He's the one true God. As the Father in government, he governs beyond the time and space realm. He is the originator of all things because the word Father basically means originator. And he sees the end from the beginning. As the Son, he is, is the full expression of the Father beyond time and space into the time and space realm. In fact, the word Son basically means expression, expression of the source, who is the Father, into the time and space realm. In Hebrews 1.3, it says that Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father. 
Christ himself said in John 14, he that has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus Christ is the full expression of the full quality of God's being into the time and space realm. He was full of grace and truth. The truth represents the holiness of God, the integrity of his love. The grace represents the fact that God's love is so ultimate in its integrity that he actually could take judgment upon himself and extend grace to his creation. To give you as an individual and those whoever they are that repent, who out of their own will have fallen short, of this glory of God that is in the perfection of his love. That they could be reconciled to God who have not directly sinned against the blessing of his glorious presence through sin via the physical realm, indirectly sinning against God. And when I say indirectly, that doesn't mean you're any less guilty. That's just an explanation to understand that we could be reconciled to God. So what we have here is one true God and then the Holy Spirit, which is God in personage, in omnipresence of full knowledge everywhere at the same time with the ability to be in personage everywhere at the same time, to be creative everywhere at the same time because his presence is attached to every particle of existence that he has created. One of the names of God is Elohim, which means the Almighty's One. There's a plurality because God is governing in all dimensions that he has created beyond time and space, in time and space and filling all space. And if he was not in personage in those three aspects, he wouldn't be really ruling in those realms and would be less than God. And if he could not assure to his creation destiny, he would imply that he created a creation without purpose and would imply that he is imperfect. But he has provided for you and whoever will the opportunity to be reconciled to God. But it involves choosing to genuinely fear God. And what Christ is talking about in this passage has to do with the fear of God. But it starts out describing hypocrisy, the condition of one's heart where we justify independence from God with religious things that we feel are acceptable before God. Now, this takes us back to Cain. Now I laid a foundation in order to describe Cain. Cain was offended at the consequences of suffering in the world and of the curse. Oh, it was subtle. There was an alienation in his heart and he began to withdraw from God and to perceive that he was more like an enigma. He lost, he had offense against the holiness of God. And I can tell you that there are many people that become offended and say, God, if you're God, why do you allow all this suffering in the world? God, if you're God, why did this happen in my life and to my family? How could you be God and let all these things happen when you're supposed to be so powerful? 
And there's offense that happens because we wonder why God allows these things individually and as we observe throughout the world, just like Cain. What we don't understand is that the holiness of God has integrity and it cannot condone those things that are contrary to this ultimate perfection of love which I have described, which always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice that would be self-gratifying and therefore would have corruption in it and therefore could not contain unlimited life and power in a state that could be channeled in creative expressions of love and goodness that is ever enlarging in fulfillment. And so, people begin, like Cain, to withdraw. And they no longer perceive God for who he really is. They begin to develop a distorted image of God like Cain. Cain began to perceive God as a tyrant that was powerful and controlling. Yes, he said that God was holy, probably. But his understanding of the holiness of God lost sight of the goodness of God that was behind the holiness of God and took offense. Forgetting that we are mere humans and our understanding is limited, that we should trust God, that he, his holiness is good. This was the whole issue even with what Job went through. It seemed totally unjust what God was allowing. Here he is, a righteous man, and he's going through all these trials. What did God say to Job? He said, he compared, when he appeared at the end there, he's, he started describing how he is so creative and that he creates this and he creates that. And he was basically saying this to Job, how could you possibly trust in your own understanding and not understand that I'm good and that my creativity is so great that you can trust me through these things, that I'm doing something that is creative in you? In essence, that's what was being said. He gives the many examples of his creativity. And this is mentioned also in Peter where it says, them that suffer are to keep the, commit the keeping of their souls unto God as unto a faithful creator. One that is faithful in his creativity to realize that he has an ultimate purpose of good, that it's not forever. If we trust him through it, if we do not take offense, and what happens when we take offense is there, there's a distorted, idolatrous, monotheistic view of God. As someone that demands submission, but we've lost sight of the goodness of God. King David said, one thing have I desired and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. It says that we're to worship God in the beauty of holiness. You see, it's out of holiness that comes wholeness. Because it is only holiness that can contain life and power that's unlimited in a state that can be channeled 
in goodness, in ever-enlarging realms of creative fulfillment that are expressed out of a pure love, a pure agape love. And so wholeness comes out of holiness. And out of the wholeness comes beauty. And so King David says, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord. And he goes on, and I won't go on with that verse. Those that genuinely fear God choose to recognize God for who he is in reality, which is a quality of being that is ultimately trustworthy. When the serpent whispered into Eve, hath God said at that moment when she made the choice to buy into that lie, she no longer perceived God as ultimately trustworthy. She lost her trust in God and bought into a lie of a false teaching that the serpent was giving her. That she could become a god and somehow avoid the consequences of her choice. And that lie is fed as leaven throughout history and it started in Cain. And so Cain has a perception of God where he feels what God will accept is his hard sweat and labor and performance. His performance. And he's rejected. And then he's offended more at God because he's not being accepted by God for all of this hard labor that's coming out of his own self-sufficiency. reason he believed that mere performance could make him acceptable before God is because his heart became alienated from who God really was. He lost the genuine fear of God and began to justify the things that were in his heart of offense towards God, and which brought offense towards Abel and others that ultimately resulted in murder. Now, I've been studying some amazing things in archaeology recently, and I find it very interesting what they've discovered, and I won't go into it. To say this, that there is an archaeologist, and he's not a believer. His name is David Roll. And he draws, uh, points out that the first city after the flood, which is Arudu, was actually the city of Cain that existed before the flood. And the reason, he gives his reasons, it's, it's evidence, it's not totally 100% conclusive, but it's very interesting and persuading evidence and an indicator that, and there is great evidence that this is the case because the inhabitants there, there use the same words. It's too much to go into the details of the evidence, but it's pretty good evidence. It's coming from a non-believer. And so you have this first city that was built after the flood, which was by um, the father of Ham. Now, Ham was just fathered by his father, probably not really. He was probably came forth through um, a fallen angel from the evidence that there is on all of this. 
Uh, and it's really interesting stuff, and I don't want to get, get sidetracked onto it. But his father didn't really build the city. He just established a colony there. And then Ham, which was 11 cubics tall, because back in those days there was giants, and this man was probably 11 cubics, would be probably, I would guess, around 17 feet tall. And that's what all the writings and clay tablets that have been dug up show that that is the case. And he was very gifted and talented. But in the clay tablet writings, uh, Ham says, I will take vengeance on God because he allowed the flood. And Ham was very offended at God because he allowed the flood. And this is clear from the clay tablet writings. It's very clear. These writings can be found from Josephus. They can be found from many different sources. Ham had different names in these clay tablet writings, but they show how those names are actually the name for, pardon me, not Ham, Nimrod. My mistake, Nimrod is who I'm talking about, the son of Ham, who is believed to be only fathered by Ham and possibly brought forth by a fallen angel, which is why he was so big compared to many others and very gifted and talented and and it's a long story. But Ham developed a very powerful city in Arudu, uh, and then he made another, and then in the Ur of Chaldees, where many, many hundreds of years later, Abraham was born. And in Ur of Chaldees, the walls were 80 feet tall by 70 feet wide and went for many miles, and they reflected in the sun like pure bright metal, and it was a very highly sophisticated civilization and with great ability to work in metals and so on. And that's what the evidence shows. You can see all the evidence that's been dug up. But this was a whole system that was anti-God. And so they even believed in worshiping this one, these, these, these gods. They developed a distorted view of God. Cain developed that distorted view of God in the city of Cain before the flood, which carried on for some time before the flood came. And then after the flood, they recognized where that city was after the flood. They would have known the location of Mount Ararat and the approximate location where that city was and probably found the remains of it. And so they rebuilt it, and it was called Arudu. And that is also where the genuine Babylon is. And it talks about this Babylon revelations. So I won't go into all of the details and sidetrack you with these things. But the belief systems that came out of Arudu and all of that is too much to go into. Started off with clear evidence of monotheism, and but their perception of God was distorted like Cain's. And then there was other gods that were born out of that god, and there was the moon god, and the moon god spread to the Babylonian Empire and then to the Arabs, which marched around the black stone with their, what was it, 360 gods. And the ultimate god around those 360 gods was called the god, which means Allah, and then later on Mohammed comes and he tells them to get rid of all these other gods and even again to get rid of the moon god, but he still used the name Allah and they still marched around that rock. And so there's a little bit of a picture of some history without going into a lot of the details. Even in the Egyptian empire, which started and was conquered by Nimrod, the first part of the Egypt, there's very strong, very strong archaeological logical evidence pointed out by David Rawl, who isn't a Christian, but a very honest man. 
and exposes a lot of the lies that corrupt people in high positions that are leading archaeology and so on of recent have caused. The universities buy into and they ignore certain things, but he, being an honest man, has exposed a lot of this. There's even a movie coming out, or has come out in a DVD you can buy on, on this right now. I forgot the name of it. But all of this is to point out that there is this leaven that started way back in the time of Cain. And Nimrod was the one that continued with that leaven. He was angry at God and he said he was going to take vengeance on God and develop a whole world system that was anti-God with these idolatrous things that they practiced. Involved the sacrifice of children and so on. There are two distortions that happen in viewing God that totally take people away from the genuine fear of God. One is the ignoring of the integrity of God's love, which is the holiness of God. Where there's an emphasis that God is kind of like this loving Santa Claus that receives all people. Come to God just as you are. You know that verse, it says, if you come to me, I will in no wise cast you out. It's true that if you come to Christ, he will in no wise cast you out. But you can only come to Christ with a genuine repentant heart. You're not coming to Christ if there isn't repentance in your heart when you have sin. If you come and you think that through your performance, you can justify yourself before God and ignore the, the, the root things in your heart that are contrary to God, you're not really coming to Christ. And you probably have ignored the integrity of God's love and embraced a false grace gospel. On the other hand, I have seen churches that become condemning and legalistic to the negation of the grace of God. And you can pick up on those churches the, the tendency for people to be in bondage and to turn away from God because they feel like they can't. receive his grace or make it. And so you have these two extremes even in the body of Christ. And so Christ is speaking here and he says to the Pharisees, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. But what we tend to do is cover what's in our heart and not be honest and transparent before God. Neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in the closet shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. Now, is there a connection between what he just said? It seems like he's changing the subject. Suddenly he's saying, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. The tendency for people is to put a stronger identity in relation to those that are their friends or those that they want to be looked up to highly because they're part of their upbringing and their background and what everyone else looks up to so highly. So they want to be like their friends and look up to the same things highly. And so, 
their motivation is out of an identity, not in a relationship with God, but more in a relationship with whoever they are putting their identity in, whether it's their friends. Christ described this in John. He says, whatsoever is born of... First of all, it says in 1 John, that whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. The word faith is the Greek word pistis, which means persuasion. Our persuasion is in who God is. But if we are persuaded by our friends, and that's where identity is, then there will be fear in our heart of being rejected by our friends, more than a reverence and an awe for who God is. And so what we do is we become dishonest and we justify the dishonesty by false teachings that our friends give us in order so we can have security more in one another than in our relationship with God. We see this thing, this principle happening throughout church history. Originally, God puts the leadership that he's raising up by his spirit through the crucible of testing and trial in the wilderness, such as Moses and others that were men of God that lived a selfless life and in God's time were raised up by him supernaturally as leaders. But over time, his people began to be at ease and not to seek God and not to fear God and to practice the genuine fear of God through seeking God out of humility. Those come into leadership that have motives that desire people to look up to them and security or whatever else. A church can develop an amazing... There can be a powerful revival where there's truths that come forth that have come out of the revelation of the Spirit of God. But then as time goes on, those truths become enshrined. The children grow up and there's blessings. God's blessing out, out of the revival comes. But then those children become more important. Those gifts that God has given become more important than one's relationship with God. And soon the truth is enshrined and a denomination is formed around it in a hierarchy. And then when there is greater revelation that comes in another revival and people come to that group, they're given the cold shoulder and even persecuted because they are a threat to the hierarchy that's been built up around a truth that was once a revelation and now has just become a ritualistic shell. And we see this pattern throughout history, that then there's the mother structure, which has become a mere ritualistic shell where people have found their identity more in one another than in a relationship with God and therefore persecute the remnant within until there is such pressure that there's the birthing of a remnant out of that mother structure. And God's purpose throughout history is like unto a seed that is growing and the seed grows and the shell is broken and there's that original rebirth even as we've experienced in our own lives as we were in that state of pride and rebellion against God. 
like Cain. But God brought us to the place like the prodigal son where the pressures of this world were breaking that outward shell of self-sufficiency and pride that was ignoring the condition that was deep inside. And the light of the sun has shone into our hard shell and the water of God's spirit has melted it and finally we died. And we cried out and said like the prodigal son, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And new life was brought forth and our life came forth. But then the seed grows and there's the shuck that tries to enclose the seed again through trials and testings. We may allow protections to come around our lives individually where we refuse to be transparent before God to admit our weakness. We shrink back in our weakness. That's why it says in Hebrews that we are to come boldly to the throne of grace in the time of need. We're not to hide our weaknesses. The context is in relation to our weakness that God is able to secure us, but we refuse to receive the securing of God's comfort and to come to him with our weaknesses and to trust him in his grace that he has the power to break those things in our lives. And we let the devil condemn us. And so some give way to the enfolding shuck and do not continue to mature and grow. But the shuck is used to cause pressure in order to bring a greater rebirth and transformation in our lives. And so those that persevere through the trials, as great as they may be, will come forth into a greater transformation, as it were a butterfly coming out of the cocoon before God in resurrection life. And as the shuck continues to grow, eventually the corn is, the, the shuck falls off and the corn is glowing in the sun. And the same has happened to the body of Christ corporately. There has been the pressures of the hierarchies that have persecuted the remnant. But as they persevere, there is the throwing off of those things that are not of God. And as history goes on, there's the greater and greater transformation. But it's still within the shuck. But at the end, God has his bride. And the shuck falls off forever. And the corn is glowing in the sun, as it says in Romans chapter 8. That there will be the manifestation of the sons of God that will bring the liberation of the whole creation. It's described in Hosea as well where it says the heavens shall hear the earth and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the corn and the wine shall hear Jezreel and Jezreel means it will be sown of God. And that is what God is seeking to do is to bring us into a relationship with him where he can be allowed to be sown into our lives by allowing the state of self-confidence and pride and self-sufficiency that is an independence from God to be broken. It is an ongoing process. The word of God says that as we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And how do we receive Christ? Christ described it this way. He said, the Pharisees that are thanking God that they fast three times a week and do this and that and are glorying in their own self-sufficiency are not justified before God, but this publican and sinner that is beating his breast and burying his face in the ground and crying out from the depths of his heart and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That man is justified before God. He is truly rending his heart before God and recognizing God for who he truly is in his holiness and in his grace, or he would not cry out for his grace and his mercy. 
It is, in the fear, it is the choice to genuinely fear God that causes one to recognize the greatness of God's mercy towards them personally. And in that recognition of the greatness of God's mercy towards them personally, there is the recognition of the greatness of the love of God, which is a revelation that causes faith to respond in the heart to what is a persuasion of who is ultimately trustworthy because it sees God for who he truly is as the one that is ultimately trustworthy, that ultimate negative and positive, as it were, the plus sign that represents the cross, that represents God's mercy towards us. This is the passage. This is what Christ is pointing out here. This is the relationship between the leaven of hypocrisy and the next thing he says to his friends, not to be fearful, but to fear him that has the power to cast into hell. It is the genuine recognition of the holiness of God that drives one to recognize that if God is that pure and holy, surely he is so great that he can provide mercy and forgiveness. This is not something on an intellectual level. I am describing things that may not be comprehended by the mind, but are what is going on in the heart. It is a turning of the heart of, in the right recognition of God. The bursts, the genuine fear of God, that is the genuine fear of God, that bursts the perception of God's love which causes faith to respond because faith works by love, by the revelation of the love of God. As we go on here, he describes other fears that can get in the way of our relationship with God. Not only the fear of being martyred or killed for what we believe, but he says, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings and not one of them is forgotten before God? He's pointing out that we should trust God, that we should recognize that he knows the very number of hairs on our head, that we can even trust him if we're, we're about to be martyred, that he has our destiny, our best destiny in mind, because God is good, and the evidence that he is good is, in, is found in that he is holy and will not tolerate sin, because therein there can be no corruption in God. And if there's no corruption in God, he is ultimately good. And if he's ultimately good, then he is merciful. And I want to declare to you that this gospel that I am sharing with you is the everlasting gospel that is mentioned in Revelations 14. And I'm not the only one sharing this. But this is the message of the last days because in Revelations 14, there is an angel that goes forth and preaches the everlasting gospel. And what is the essence? It says there in Revelations 14 that what this angel says is fear God. That's the first thing he says. And give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth. And it goes on to describe the first angel. And in Revelations 14, it is showing the sequence of events. For the next angel that follows is the destruction of the world system, of the horror that sits on many waters, which are the systems of democracy that have come into the place of corruption and defiance against God with their blasphemies of immorality. 
that defy the holiness and the glory and the purity of his love. And so the world system is destroyed, most likely by atomic attack from China and Russia, which has been prophesied by Henry Groover and many other prophets that have literally laid down their lives before terrorists and been delivered time and time again. And you do not speak lightly of things that God reveals to them. And after the destruction of the world system, the Antichrist system is established upon the earth. And he builds another Babylon because there's two Babylons in Revelations. The second Babylon is not destroyed by fire. The second Babylon is destroyed by the mighty earthquake where it says, and the nation and the cities and the nation no, it's, and the cities of the world fell by the and that there was no earthquake that even could come close to the greatness of this one. And I don't have time to go into that and be distracted. Isaiah 24 describes people in the body of Christ praising him in the midst of the fires of this great destruction of the world system, which is the seventh seal when the Antichrist is destroyed. I'm not going to go into it. In this passage of scripture, we need to be aware that God is omnipresent, that we can trust him, that he knows the very of hairs on our head, even when we face martyrdom and death. And he goes on to say here, that whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the son of man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men. Now, why would they deny before men? Because they're more concerned about their relationship with their friends and their upbringing. But John says, those that are born of God, those that are born of the Spirit are those that are not born of the flesh, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of God, but of God. They're not motivated by what people think, nor of their bloodline nor of the will of people or any of these things. The only thing that motivates them is their identity of love and fellowship in God, even to martyrdom and to death, so that they boldly confess Christ even as Stephen did before he was stoned in the book of Acts. And so he foretells that they will be brought before the synagogues and powers and they don't have to even worry about what to say because the Holy Ghost will teach them in the same hour what to say. Well, that's verses 1 to 12 of Luke chapter 12. And he goes on to address other fears in the next verses from 13 to 21. And need I repeat it? I've already mentioned it. Those that are so concerned about their own securities that all their time and energy is spent seeking their own comfort and they fail to seek first the kingdom of God. And God says, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then in verses 22 to 53, we are to be living our life 
as if the Lord will return at any moment, because the Lord will return when we do not expect him to, to return if we are living otherwise. And we see that in verses 22 to 53. We are to be walking in a love relationship with God. Now, there's the parable of the 10 wise virgins and the 10 foolish virgins, which is very similar to what Christ is talking about here, about being prepared for the return of Christ. Individually throughout history, many have been martyred. Many have been taken suddenly, not expecting to be taken. But if they're in a right relationship with God, it's as if they never even died. For Christ said, whoever believes in me, though shall never die, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. Yes, there's the separation of the body. God is right there to bring an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. And there's a movie coming out soon on that pastor that was killed in a car accident and was dead for, what was it, 40 minutes, which is an amazing story. But we are to also be ready, especially in this hour, for the soon return of Christ. Not to be asleep, but to be awake. And the Lord is after his corporate bride, and he's jealous for his corporate bride as never before. And he's wanting us to know such an intimate relationship with him that we can hear his voice so that we do not do our own plan and agenda, but are about feeding his sheep and doing those things that he's called us to do. We are to be ready for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when you think not. And of course, he says that we're to have our lions girt about, that's the, with truth, and our lights burning. We're to be those that are a blazing light in the midst of the darkness, that are always looking onto the return, the marriage of the Lamb. And the body of Christ today, God is challenging the body of Christ to come forth out of its sleep and to hear the trumpet call of the Spirit. What does that mean? It means to come out of the shells of our own comfort and not be like the ten unwise virgins. Yes, you can go to a spirit-filled church and your oil can be filled up and you can have really good messages and really good meetings, but you are not open to the full counsel of God. So there's not the extra oil because you're not going beyond your comfort zone. Are you willing to let go of a denominational mindset that does not receive others as Christ commanded us to receive one another because you only receive those that are of the same mindset and part of your group? Are you willing to, are church denominations willing to cast off the shell of denominationalism? I believe in these last days there will be church denominations that will literally cast off the shell of denominationalism and they will not allow the hierarchy of man that is insensitive to the spirit to be in leadership. It's not enough 
when professionalism, because you go to a Bible school and you get a degree, becomes the major criteria for being a pastor, it is not allowing the Spirit of God to raise up those that he's gifted as pastors, those that he's gifted as evangelists and prophets. Those hierarchies must repent of their insensitivity and to make professionalism the focus over the witness of the Holy Spirit as to who has been gifted in the body of Christ to be in such positions. When we start our church services, are we allowing the full headship of Christ to inhabit our corporate body in our gatherings? To inhabit the corporate body of the city that we dwell in with the other churches? Are we allowing the headship of Christ? I am preaching in this hour the headship of Christ to come back into the body of Christ that he might fully inhabit it with his glory. And that headship requires that we do not cry and complain because there's so few people coming to the prayer meetings, but that we make the church itself a house of prayer. Oh, how wonderful it is when the leadership, before in the actual church service, gets on their faces and humbles themselves till they are wailing, till they are in brokenness before God sometimes. I'm not saying he's always going to move in the same way. But to where they are in awe before God, where we can learn to be wait and be still in humility before God and just be in a place of prayer, of being conscious that Christ is in our midst. And then out of that, allow, out of that place of hallowing God as the Father, as it says in the Lord's Prayer, to allow the Spirit of God to rise up within us in the gifts. And then one shares out of the moving of the Spirit one thing and another another. And we begin to see that God is confirming what this person is saying is the same as what that person is saying. And then what the pastor is about to preach on turns out to be exactly what they were prophesying without that knowledge being known to one another. I was actually in a church where this happened over and over again, and I found it amazing, and I never found a church since that moves in that way. Even though that church tends to, in my judgment, have some measure of a denominational mindset, but they are a wonderful group. And that's one thing that I was amazed at that happened in that church. And I pray it continues there and that they go on to such enlargement that there is no shell that would limit God in their midst. And I pray that for every church, that the leadership would learn to allow the headship of Christ to come down and they would build the church on the foundation, which is a house of prayer. And then it is then that there is... The spirit of control is broken that limits God. Paul said that God has put more abundant honor on the part that lacks that there should, that there should be no schism in the body. So what is the cause of division and denominationalism in the body of Christ? It is that God cannot allow more abundant honor to come unto the part that lacks because of control. Because the body of Christ cannot function and move in the gifts of the Spirit because they've not started off on their faces in humility before God, out of the fear of God. 
But when God can be allowed to move with the power of his spirit on someone that may be insignificant and not very attractive in the natural, it humbles those that tend to be looked up to in the natural. So the spirit of pride is broken so that there cannot be that denominational spirit of division. For division comes by contention, it says in Proverbs. It com- it, division comes by pride, pardon me, it says in Proverbs. So God is calling his bride to come forth. The bride that will not allow themselves to just have the oil that fills up one vessel, but goes all the way and is open to the full counsel of God to come forth without spot, without the spots of divisions and of control, without the loves of the world. I see pastors time and time again get up and say how they've been watching this sports game and that. Am I saying it's wrong to go and do those things? No, who am I to condemn? In fact, I found myself saying, I'm not going to hold it against that pastor, that he's that way. I'm just, I just felt a love for him. But why do people in leadership talk about going and watching sports when it is the very idol of our society that is robbing many believers of a life of prayer and of holiness? The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was pride, abundance of bread, and idleness, it says in Ezekiel. And one of the things that is happening is the gods of amusement that are the gods of idleness. And it's so easy to condone these things, and we do not repent of it in the body of Christ. God is calling us unto holiness. He is raising his standard of holiness up, and it requires that we also repent of these things without legalism, without saying, making a bunch of rules of what you can and can't do. But let us be an example that are in leadership that encourages people in the direction of purity, of death to the things of this world that would rob them from a relationship with Christ. Thus we will be the wise steward, whom when the Lord comes, finds serving his sheep and not beating them because he's become drunken with the loves of the world and justify those loves with the congregation that have caused a hardness of heart and an adultery from God with the world that in turn out of that hardness of heart has birthed literal adultery and divorce in the church. Oh, when there's the love of God, we want to get before one another and wash one another's feet as it were with the word of God and humility. Above all, before the feet of Christ, like Mary that broke the alabaster box, we will come and break our hearts from all those things that would hold back the full torrent of the oceans of his love that would he desires to inhabit the body of Christ with till we become all in the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a mature man, unto the fullness of the stature of Christ, till we become an habitation of God through the Spirit that allows the greater works of the Spirit and of his glory and power to be executed through the body of Christ, to turn and conquer a nation for him. The secret strategy that God has to conquer the nations of the world in this last day is not a political solution. It is the body of Christ coming forth to become his bride, filled with his love that shines as a bright light in the darkness of this world that is filled with the temporal baits that the enemy uses to manipulate their lives to destruction and greater and greater emptiness.
And so I encourage the body of Christ, come forth and be his bride. There was a time when Lincoln called for a full day of fasting and prayer without food or water in the United States, and other presidents did that. What would happen if we, as the body of Christ, made a three-day fast without food or water for those that could endure it? and cried out with all our heart for God to save the multitudes and to save our nation and to save the United States and the nations of the world. What would happen? Brothers and sisters, let us begin to not let the thirst of God be quenched in us by the thirst of this world that would take away from a thirst for ultimate reality, which is in relationship with God. But let us Feed a thirst for God by a life of holiness until we can open our mouth wide and be filled with the blessings of his presence and his glory and the greater works and be those that are ready when the Lord comes to be his corporate bride. I pray that this message goes forth to multitudes that would be open to hear it. And thank you for listening to this message. Pray for me that God would meet my needs financially so that I can be released to spend more time and give myself to the word of God and have less entanglements with the things that are responsibilities where I need to meet various payments. God bless you all. Amen.